Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and merciful, merciful Father, we pray that you would let your mercy be shown to us and come to us this very morning, that we might find life, that we would find delight in your word, that those who have uh, set their face against you, uh, would see their shame, and those who have persecuted us would receive justice. Lord, help us, though, in those times to be able to meditate on your word and your promises. Lord, let us know of the truths which are contained in within your revealed word. Let our hearts be blameless in your statutes, that we would not be put to shame as we find ourselves in Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 105. This God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever and the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, a covenant that he made with Abraham, he sworn, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for your inheritance. When there were few in number of little account and sojourners in a wandering, wandering from the nation to nation, from one kingdom to another he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, and the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free, and he made him lord of his house, a ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Han, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than the foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants, He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. They turned their waters into blood. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail and rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. 
He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoted all the vegetation in the land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. And he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and he gave bread and and heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations. They took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Many nations have a particular day on their calendar in which they celebrate or commemorate an important day in history which is to be remembered, a day that stands out from other days in their story. There are many days that make up the the nation's history or the nation's story, but there's a particular day of great importance. The United States of America, maybe it's the 4th of July which comes to mind, not merely about Uh, hot dogs and fireworks, but it's really to commemorate the 4th of July in 1776 when the Continental Congress formally adopted the Declaration of Independence in which the 13 states, the 13 colonies, were no longer subject to British rule. It stated very important principles which founded this country. Men were created equal had the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It was this day, this pivotal moment for the country. Although it really was not until the Revolutionary War, years later in 1783, that it would officially be a nation, you would say that that first day was where this nation really was conceived or brought forth. And so it is on this date that the Americans celebrate this pivotal moment in their history. Now many nations have stories like this. Many nations have stories of their birth, where they come from. And we are about to embark on the story, which is one of the greatest stories of the people of God. A pivotal moment in their history. The great story of Exodus and how God saves his people. This would become the story that every year the people of God would celebrate. The children would be taught and instructed. Why do we celebrate this day? Why do we do it this way? This is the story they would tell. Not how a great nation they are, but what a great God they serve. What a great God who has saved them. What we see in this book of Exodus is poor and pitiful people. 
whom God, with an outstretched arm, delivers them from the hands of their enemies and even from themselves. We see this throughout the psalm we just read, even the beginning. What, what are we to make known? We're to sing praises to him. We're to tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. We're to seek the Lord in his strength. Remember his wondrous works that he's done, his miracles and judgments he uttered. We see this throughout the whole book of Exodus, God's power and might to be able to draw Israel out. Now, who wrote the book of Exodus? Now, if you're ever uh, looking for interesting topics, go to any book of the Bible and ask the question, who wrote it? And you'll find many scholars differing on many different opinions with many different theories. We're not told specifically in the book of Exodus who wrote it down. Uh, There's portions that Miriam probably wrote down. There's portions that we know God wrote by his own hand but then recorded by someone. Now in uh, Exodus chapter 24 and verse 4 and 27, God tells Moses to write this down. Now specifically, I think what he is talking about there is that section of the covenant of, that God makes in, verses, in chapters 19 to 24. However, we are told throughout all the Bible who wrote the book of Exodus. The Old Testament says that Moses wrote Exodus in Joshua and, and Second Chronicles. Jesus and the Gospel authors explain that Moses wrote Exodus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even other New Testament authors show that Moses wrote Exodus in Romans 10 and Acts 3. So we can turn to all these other theories and, 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 and thoughts that people have, but Ultimately, we turn to the Bible, and the Bible answers our own question. You're always going to find scholars that question details like this. What they try and do is, is put space between the time of the event that happened and then and try and place it later down, centuries down the road, so that people can say, well, they interpreted history in their own light. But we're told clearly in the Bible who wrote the book of Exodus Moses. And we attribute all Scripture as God-breathed, written by the hand of man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write Exodus, and then later tells another author who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to say that Moses wrote Exodus, then we know that Moses wrote Exodus. The second aspect of this is, who is Exodus written to? Now, this is always an interesting thing when we're thinking about historical narrative, which is what Exodus is. We often think about the audience that it happens to. We think about those people who are in Egypt at the time, and we think this is written for them. Well, in a, in a way, the events that happened are for those people, as we will see as Moses interacts with Pharaoh these words that are spoken are, are spoken to Pharaoh that Pharaoh might heed the word of the Lord and Pharaoh might respond to the word of the Lord. But Exodus is not written for Pharaoh. Exodus is not even written for the people who are leaving, who 
exit Israel. The original audience is not who it happened to. The original audience is who is it written to. Now, this book written by Moses means that it has to happen after they were redeemed, after they were out of slavery, but then also that it has to happen before he died. And there's one large window where this book would have been written. That's in the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. Now, at what point in the wilderness wanderings? That's a good question. However, I think that it's, it's not specifically written to the people who are leaving Egypt. It's about the sons and daughters who are about to enter the promised land that they might be able to know of how God rescued and redeemed their people. That God that his mighty signs and wonders that we will see and behold are written that those children and the sons and the daughters might be able to know and worship the one true living God. But also that gives us hope. Because that doesn't mean we need to be there to be able to, for it to be written. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That we have the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is not a Jewish book, inasmuch as it's a Christian book of the true sons and daughters of Abraham. That we might be able to read this book. That we might have endurance and encouragement. That we might be able to find hope in this book. we would see these glorious signs and wonders as we consider as that psalm we just read. In verse 42, For he, the Lord, remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. We have hope that God fulfills his promises, and God fulfills them with all of his might and power and strength. The great length that God does to be able to redeem his people, that his name might be able to be glorified. But also, Paul explains that we might be able to learn from those and their bad example. Not only that we turn to the Lord and see of all of his hope that he gives us, but also to be able to see their unbelief, how they respond. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a great example of this. The book of Exodus is written for those that are about to enter into that promised land, but also for us today. That we don't stand on the edge of the Jordan, but we stand on the edge of that river in which we go to eternity, into the heavenly land where our true citizenship lies. And we pray as we read and study this book that we would be encouraged to endure, that we'd be encouraged to be able to find our hope in God and all of his promises. The next thing that we'll consider is just quite briefly, when did the actual Exodus event occur? If we know that Moses wrote the book and we believe he wrote it in that 40 years wilderness wanderings, but when did the actual event of Exodus occur? 
Now again, you can find many different opinions on this. It's hard to be able to date that. Moses doesn't write when he wrote this and pen the date that he signed it. There's other uh, methods you can use, archaeological studies and other nations, historical references, and try and piece in when this actual event happened. But again, we can turn to the Bible, and the Bible tells us enough information to be able to know, to be able to narrow it down. The first is in 1 Kings chapter 6, and the second is Exodus chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 6 begins by saying, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of the son Solomon's reign over Israel, in the months of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So we're told that it had been 480 years into the fourth year of Solomon's reign. That's 476 years before Solomon started his reign, and he started in 970 B.C. So this would place the Exodus date around 1446 B.C. Now this is early, considering what a lot of people think, especially with a piece of evidence of archaeological studies. They believe Ramesses II is the pharaoh in which they talk about, and he was in the 1300s, the uh, 1200s BC, and he built Pithom and Ramesses. Now, this would mean that date in 1 Kings is inaccurate. Now, some scholars, biblical scholars, have sought to be able to understand the reference in 1 Kings, explaining that it's not necessarily about 480 years, but what they would say is that it's, it's about generations. 480 years would be about a 40-year generations, so 12 generations. So it's not accurately 480 years. What they say is if you change the generation to about 25 years, that falls you back into that uh, later date where Ramesses II was ruling. But I think what you're then doing is you're changing something that is more certain to something that is less certain. Mainly, Egyptian historical sources are often sporadic. They don't have a time flow. They don't have uh, periods. We think of a kingdom of Egypt as one solid kingdom over a long period of time, and that's not the case. Often there was different divides within the kingdoms and different realms. There was overlap. There's large sections of their history missing. But secondly, archaeologists cannot even know where these cities are located. So if you don't know where they're located, then how can you say this is when that date, that city was built? So again, you find more disclarity in that. But also another interesting comment is cities often change their name. And it's quite possible that later scribes would change the reference that we find in Exodus to be able to refer to a city that is known to the, uh, the readers rather than a city that might be ambiguous to them. But the second date that helps us also is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 and 41. It says that the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Thus, depending on when you think um, that uh, date is 1446 B.C. or 1290 roughly B.C., 
This would mean that Jacob moved to Egypt with his sons, was about 1876 B.C. or 1720. But in all of this, I, I turn back to what does the Bible say? We turn to scholarly opinions based on empirical evidences. I think it's hard to be able to find. But I think the Bible has been proven time and time again, and often in these cases, there are theories that go up, and then in 50 years' time, there's another archaeological study or finding that then shifts back to the Bible's original view. So I think it's that earlier date of 1446, and this also, I think, falls in place with um, Egyptian uh, rulers around the time of uh, Joseph and and many agricultural um, things, improvements that happened around that time. But we're not told specifically what date it is, because the date is not too important. The date is, is, it happened within history, but the purpose is not about what day specifically it happened. It's about what happened on that day. In the end, the irony is that Pharaoh turns around when Moses walks in and says, let God's people go. And, and Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord? I've never heard of him. But yet, as we read through this story, no one knows who the Pharaoh is. <laughs> no one knows who he is. Everyone remembers who the Lord is. And I think that's a great irony in all of this. The next section would be the outline. How do you outline a big book like this? I think some people divide it into two. First 18 chapters speaking of the Exodus, and then 19 to 40 is the remainder of this about how God um, saved his people and what they're called to be able to do. Some people add a third column in the middle of chapters 19 to 24 is the covenant God makes with the people of Egypt, uh, people of Israel and the tabernacle. But I think when you understand how an outline helps us understand the story of the book, where is it going to? What's the purpose? What's the drive? I think that helps us. And I think that uh, Alec Moutier has a great outline which, which spaces it out in three, but a bit differently. The first is Israel in Egypt, where it speaks about the Savior, God delivering his people. That God is the saving God. The second is chapters 13, 14 to 24, where God is the companion, the covenant Lord, who saves his people out and who, who makes a covenant with his people. And then chapters 24 to 40 speaks of the indwelling Lord. The God who not only brings his people out, makes a covenant with them that they would be his God, he would be their God and they would be his people, but he comes to be able to dwell in the midst of them. That they're saved out. I think that structure helps us understand that God merely doesn't just want them to be free, men and women. He wants them to be free and make a covenant with them and dwell with them. He wants to dwell in their midst. He saves his people for a purpose, that he would be worshipped. Again, it's hard to be able to see this 
But I think even in the, the structure, a chiastic structure where you start in A, B, C, D, and then you work backwards, D, C, B, A. And what you see is they begin by building a house for Pharaoh. What, Egypt, what do they do? The people of God end by building a house for God. You have the Lamb of God, the, the, the golden calf, the God who's their companion, the covenant God, the, the indwelling God, and the center of this is the grace and the, the law of God. We, we see the movement of God is not merely just to save his people, but to save them from slavery that they might serve him. Hopefully we'll see this point as we go through. Finally, what are the major themes that we're going to see in this book as we go through this whole book? What are we going to keep an eye out for as we see them build? I think the greatest thing that we think about is, as we think about Exodus is the power and glory and might of God. Through judgment of, of how he judged the people as we see in that psalm that we read, remember his wonder, the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Here the people of God have been oppressed and persecuted for hundreds of years and a cry out for God and God with an outstretched arm comes and shows them judgment. That here they're saved, the people of God are saved for his glory, his name's sake. That God reveals himself not only to the people of God, but he reveals himself to the people of God and all the nations. Other nations will hear of what God does. They will fear and tremble. But they will see all these signs and wonders that so no one can deny God's power and might and his sovereignty over all creation. By the end of this, Pharaoh says that he does not know who the Lord is. By the end of all that, that he sees, he will know who the Lord is. He will have no excuse. The second is that of redemption. Exodus introduces a whole new theme that, that we really haven't seen in the book of Genesis that is introduced in the book of Exodus, and that is the redeemed, saved from something. That God is the one who delivers his people. He saves them from slavery and the oppression of the world. And then you look through all the rest of the Bible and how this theme is just amplified. Well, what do we even talk about when we talk about in our world? What, you're saved. What does that mean? You've been delivered, you've been redeemed. The God that we meet in Exodus is God who redeems and delivers us. Even the, the terminology that we're saved from sin, saved, we slaves to sin. These themes are all say, showed in the book of Exodus. The third is worship, that we're saved to worship. The focus often when we think of Exodus is that we think about Exodus as the first, the first 13 or so chapters where the people of God are slaves and they're brought out. And that's where we stop. 
We don't think and consider how we're saved from that, that we're given the law that we might be able to walk, but also that we're, we're um, made that God might be able to dwell within us. But you see that here in this psalm quite clearly. Give them to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. That here they're saved, they're delivered, and, and what is their response? Their re- response is worship and adoration. They don't always get this right. What are the first four commandments? They're not about how we live and what we're called to do in specific with our neighbor. It's how we are to worship God. Or does he say at the end of Psalm 105? He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them lands and nations and took possessions of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Not only merely saved from um, slavery, but saved for a purpose, saved to be able to worship. The fourth is that we see the idea now of the mediator, the prophet, the priesthood, that we're saved through someone. In the book of Genesis, we see these glorious promises that he makes to his people and how he fulfills these promises. God appears and speaks directly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, in the book of Exodus, we see now as the nation grows, we see now the position of a prophet and a priest. These clear offices that we have a mediator now between the people of God and God. You see the priesthood more clearly in the book of Leviticus, but I think you see that also in the book of Exodus. We see how now God works through his through Christ who fulfills the office of prophet and priest and king with his people. That we see now Moses is a mediator between God and his people. Thus that's what Christ is for us. That Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The last thing that we'll see is that driving purpose, where Exodus ends. It ends not as they cross the Jordan River, not as they're given the Ten Commandments. It ends with God coming and dwelling with his people. The glory which saved Israel, this power and might, comes and descends in the midst of God's people, coming down in the tent of meeting. In the book of Genesis, God would come down and walk in the garden. But after Adam and Eve were cast from his presence because of their sin, his people could not dwell with them. Him. So God makes a way, not for his people to come up to him, but for his, him to come down to his people. There's a problem. Not even Moses can enter into the tabernacle when the glory of cloud descended upon the tabernacle. We see something of a shadow. We see shadows of Christ throughout this whole book of of this story of, of God saving, redeeming his people, but then there's something missing. Moses is not going to be able to stand between God and man. 
But we see shadows of Christ throughout this whole book. Found in Moses, the man of the rock, the tabernacle, the high priest, the Passover lamb. And as we embark on this great and glorious journey, not just to be able to see the destination, but because we will be disappointed. The Israelites in this book of Exodus do not make it to their destination, the promised land. They won't make it until they're underneath the leadership of Joshua, that next generation. And they, you see the foundation of their nation, this great and glorious pinnacle point. Not because a few men signed a piece of paper. Actually, not because of themselves at all. But because it's God. We see the mighty God redeem and rescue his people for his glory. We've quoted often throughout this, the beginning of Psalm 5, a great example of what the Exodus is all about. To be able to give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make His deeds among the people, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works, glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord with His strength continually. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He has uttered. And as it ends, it speaks that He remembered His promise and Abraham His servants. And He brought His people out with joy, His chosen ones with singing. And he gave the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his Lord uh, laws. Praise the Lord. As we see this pivotal moment of, of the story of God's people coming out, as we long and look forward, as we look to the New Testament and see how Christ saves and delivers his people, Christ our Passover lamb, but also, let us see how this is written that we may have an example that we may, might not desire evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for this glorious book in which you have revealed yourself to us and the world. Lord, as we look through this uh, story of Exodus, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Give us eyes to be able to see the shadows of Christ. Give us eyes to be able to see and hear and know of the knowledge of the power of the God in which who has called us out. Give us a heart to be able to worship and serve you. To love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, let us remember how you are the one who has brought us out of the house of slavery. You are the one who has rescued and redeemed us for your glory and your name's sake. We pray, Lord, as we read through this book, that our hearts would be filled with adoration and worship towards you. The great and mighty, strong Lord who redeems his people, that he might be able to come and dwell with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. 
Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.